A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The big day has arrived, ladies and gentlemen. Despite the distractions of the impending coronavirus lockdown, it is time to elect the 46th president of the United States of America, also known as the leader of the free world. That's right. Despite what you will hear on most media outlets, despite the propaganda pumped out from Brussels, and despite whatever you may think of the influence of China in this world, America is still our greatest ally and the most important country on the global stage. And we should all wish that it does not fall into the wrong hands. I think you know what I'm talking about. We're talking about the people wrecking uh, the inner cities of the United States of America, uh, all of which are run uh, by Democrats. Democrats. Tonight, I will be bringing you live coverage from the USA in a special presidential election edition of the Independent Republic. You won't want to miss any of it. We'll go through the night with a host of incredible guests from both sides of the Atlantic. It kicks off at one o'clock in the morning, goes all the way through until five, by which time we should have a pretty good idea of what is going on. I will, of course, bring you my predictions as we go through this show. Uh, We'll mention to you all the the guests that we are going to have coming up a little bit later on. But we, of course, want to hear from you as well, as ever. 0345. 444-499-1000. Coming up this morning, we are joined by John Redwood MP, former Secretary of State for Wales, who's calling for a more transparent approach from this government on statistics, figures and data in general. I think I couldn't agree more with Mr Redwood because, quite frankly, we are being treated as if we are complete and utter fools, idiots, people who have no clue about what is actually going on. The Daily Mail today has a fantastic expose of Messrs Witty and Valance and the, uh, and the data they chose to show as opposed to the data they could have shown us in order to justify this second lockdown. Yesterday we heard from a lot of angry people who can't believe we're having to do it all over again and now we want to hear from more of you today and we also want to hear reasons why some of you are happy to lock down again because apparently that's what the polls are telling us apparently 70% of people would like to see the lockdown happen and some would like it to be even more severe 0344 499 1000 later on we're joined by conservative commentator esther Kraku with her take on the u.s election and much else besides plus chef cyrus tony waller from saturday kitchen joins us with his views on the hospitality shutdown and how it will affect the restaurant business and we'll also hear from the henry jackson society on the latest terrorist atrocity in vienna a ghastly act committed by ghastly people in another one of Europe's great cities. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.
Now, as I was telling you uh, earlier on, the Daily Mail today has got a brilliant expose uh, and it says this, we call the boffins bluff. And it says how number 10's experts shamelessly manipulated data uh, and drew biased conclusions to terrify England into locking down. Now, I've been going on about this for a while and I'm really quite surprised at the way that the government are treating us and the way that the government are using statistics in order to frighten people and into being convinced that the lockdown is necessary. John Redwood tweeted this yesterday. Why won't the government advisers and NHS management give us believable forecasts rather than hugely wide and some wild illustrations, uh, hugely wide and some wild illustrations of worst cases? Where are the accurate figures for NHS bed occupancy and how do they now define a COVID-19 death? And I think that pretty much sums up what I feel about it as well. So, John, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I saw your tweet yesterday and I thought that's exactly what I've been saying for quite a long time. I have not been convinced at all that the the, the facts we are being given and the data that we are being sort of presented with and the projections that we're seeing are in any way uh, entirely honest. Well, I've been calling for the last six months for better data uh, and more sensible forecasts uh, because it started quite early on in the pandemic. Uh, We had, I think, four different changes in the definition of a death, and there was a period when it seemed that anyone who had a sniffle or a cough was put down as dying with COVID-19, even if they were dying of something completely different. Uh, And then we we saw some very wild forecasts, certainly in the early days, about how many cases that would be, which, pleased to say, haven't turned out to be true. Uh, and we now see um, these extraordinary forecasts. I mean, the, the latest one is this 4,000 daily deaths, which would be terrifying. Uh, but we now learn that it was out-of-date data at the time it was put forward. Right. It was always a, a very, very high and unlikely forecast. Exactly right. And we're seeing, for example, um, in Liverpool, uh, news today that there's going to be mass testing tried out there to see whether it actually makes a bit of a difference. And as much as, you know, you might hope that it would make a bit of a difference, I don't hold out an awful amount of optimism for it because we've been told this many times before. But also what we're not told uh, is that the rate of infection appears to be dropping in Liverpool. Yes, and that's good news. Uh, And uh, in my own area, I I see that the last week we had fewer cases rather than more cases, and we already had a pretty low level by national standards. So that is an argument for having more locally differentiated responses. Mm. But what this comes down to, Mike, is the conduct of every one of us. And the government has to offer leadership and guidance. I don't think it can achieve it all by law and rules. We don't have enough police to enforce all these laws. And law is a very blunt instrument. People have different family circumstances and different employment circumstances. And we just want as many people as possible to make sensitive judgments so that they don't put their neighbours at great risk. And most people do that already. Some people don't. Mm. It's a question of persuasion. I don't think there are a perfect set of laws which are going to stop the virus. No, exactly. And I mean, I've just come back from a few days in the Isle of Wight where, where for half term where they've had hardly any infections at all, but they're having to shut everything down. Similarly, in places in parts of southeast England where there's barely any infection at all, everything gets shut down again. And, you know, there is a great deal of collateral damage uh, potentially here, isn't there? Well, of course there is. I mean, in the first phase of the pandemic, uh, we lost practically all our non-COVID health care so that lots of people uh, didn't get the treatments they needed. And that may have um, meant um, worse situations or the more even deaths that were avoidable. Uh, there's the question of suicide and mental stress from all this. 
But you know, the aim must be to keep as many livelihoods going as possible, mm. whilst, of course, offering good guidance and sensible rules to try and reduce the spread of the thing um, so that we can cope with it. It seems to me as well, uh, Sir John, that there isn't exactly anyone in Cabinet. I mean, I was talking to some people who are familiar with these things, shall we say, uh, who said there's not enough rebels inside the Cabinet right now who are pressing uh, Boris Johnson. Clearly, Rishi Sunak um, has been a force for good in terms of wanting to keep businesses afloat, extending the uh, furlough scheme and all of that. But there doesn't seem to be enough people, in my mind, saying things to him like, Surely saving lives in one area in order to destroy them in another is really a rather unbalanced view of the world, isn't it? Well, I think there does need to be um, strong debates in Cabinet, and I, I think um, there needs to be a better understanding generally that there is no such thing as the science. So I think when they started the, these policies, they were hoping that the scientists would have unified good advice and they could follow that and we'd, we'd get through it. And it hasn't worked out like that. And it can't work out like that because this is a, a relatively new disease. We've got many talented doctors and scientists who are researching it like mad and mm. they're gradually getting a better understanding. But they disagree amongst themselves and it's healthy they do because this is new and they don't have all the right answers yet. Uh, and politicians have to make judgments that don't just take into account the conflicting scientific advice but also the economic impact, the impact on livelihoods. Mm. So, uh, I'm afraid, yes, the politician has an extremely difficult job and there isn't an easy answer to just back one or two scientists who happen to have the ear of the government. No, I think, and that's absolutely right, and I think most responsible individuals and citizens of this country have a great deal of sympathy with the Prime Minister and Boris Johnson's difficult choices. However, yeah. what we don't want to be do, uh, the subject of is misleading information. I mean, looking at this, uh, the mail situation today, I don't know whether you've seen it on pages 16 and 17 today, you know, that heat map that they showed where yeah. the ones that they looked at were all getting darker and darker and darker, and it was all looking terribly, yep. terribly awful. At least half of that graph are light yellow boxes which show hospitals with zero COVID patients, but they didn't show us that. No, I know. And I've been asking for proper unified data on hospital capacity and use of hospital capacity for some time. And it's very difficult to get it. And I think that should be the most relevant set of statistics because their main worry, the scientific advisors of the government, seems to be NHS being uh, overwhelmed. So surely the relevant facts we should have all the time mm. are occupancy, beds, capacity, flexible capacity. Because I thought we'd solve the capacity problem in the first phase of the virus with this very successful, huge construction effort and extra recruitment of staff so that we would have Nightingale hospitals. And I think they should be the specialist CV-19 hospitals because you don't really want CV-19 patients in normal hospitals if you can avoid it because no. of cross-infection risk. That's right. And we hear all the time from, from, from medics that, you know, they have less capacity because they have to distance people more and they have to use different wards. But again, uh, looking at the actual COVID statistics, once again in the Daily Mail, Liverpool Hospital, Liverpool University hospitals, beds occupied by COVID patients out of a total of 1,595 is 450, so less than a third. Similarly, yep. Sheffield Teaching Hospitals... 249 out of 1,442. You know, every single one of these hospitals, which is in crisis, supposedly, um, has a very limited and smallish number uh, of COVID beds occupied. So I don't know what they're saying and why they're saying it. Well, that's why we need more explanation. I think they're right that when you get to 30, 40% of COVID patients in your hospital, it obviously restricts very much what you can do 
for all the other treatments you should be doing. Which yeah. is why I think they need to look again at using the new capacity and demarking some um, whole hospitals or chunks of hospital as CV19 places and having really good infection control there, keeping it well away from everybody else in, in all the general hospital yeah. wards. Because that, that, I think, would help. Right. There's no doubt about it that infection spread within hospitals and care homes in the first phase, and we want to try and stop that. Mm. Now, uh, Michael Gove appeared on uh, television on Sunday and intimated that it may be uh, that the uh, the lockdown goes beyond December the 2nd. Boris Johnson today says that's not going to happen, that they are going to come out of it on December the 2nd. But you've expressed some concern about exactly how that works and how we come out of it. Yes, they, they need an exit strategy, and we need to be reassured that the model isn't just to have lockdown, get the disease down a bit, relax, and then have another lockdown right. on a rolling basis. That doesn't really help anybody. Um, I think both Mr. Gove and the Prime Minister are, are saying the same thing at the moment. I think what they're hoping to do is, at the beginning of December, go back to the regional differentiated lockdowns. I don't think anybody in government is saying we're going to suddenly remove all the controls and lead normal lives again. Um, but I'm not even sure that they can guarantee that transition because presumably it must be data-driven. And that's again, brings us back to our opening statement that we need honest, accurate, up-to-date data. And we need more information from them about what levels of whatever they're monitoring is alarming and what levels are acceptable. Mm, indeed. And how useful do you think it will be for, for backbenchers like yourself to continue to pressurise the Prime Minister uh, on this particular subject? Because clearly um, there's a vote tomorrow in the House on these measures, um, which he's expected to win. I don't imagine there's any other outcome, really. Um, no, but are, are you able to influence that? The opposition, you know, the opposition and all the payroll vote are, are going to carry this, so... There's no way we, we can threaten to defeat it or whatever. There's no chance they'll abstain trying, in Labour? And what we're trying to do is to get a change of thinking and a change of policy, and yeah. above all, to help the Prime Minister get across a credible story, because his advisers haven't really given him that credible story mm. he needs. He needs, because he's very good at this, to get across a credible story to the public about the choices he's made and carry us all with him, because we desperately need... 67 million people to buy yeah. into this because it's the actions of all of us which determine how much social contact there is and how much spread mm. there might be. Yeah, well, I mean, if you've, if you've got his ear, uh, or at any point you do get his ear, it might be worth telling him that from our perspective here at Talk Radio, an awful lot of our listeners are very disillusioned uh, with the man that they voted in to be Prime Minister. They're very disillusioned with the policies on COVID. They're very disillusioned that we're having another lockdown. And many of them have lost faith altogether. Well, there are people like that. And then, as you said earlier, 70% of the public in opinion polls say that they're very happy to have... Well, not happy, yeah, but I don't believe that. accept the need for, for a lockdown. But it's my duty and the duty of other MPs to cross-examine in Parliament and elsewhere these ministers to make sure they've thought it all through and that they are, in turn, asking the right questions of these advisers. Because as, as we've seen... Uh, we've had some pretty shoddy data and some very strange graphs recently. Yes, I think that's right. And somehow that needs to be um, transmitted and communicated to the Prime Minister that, you know, you can't treat the people of this country like this because, unfortunately for him, social media is now a thing and people can get to see the graphs and people can exchange pieces of information from government websites. I mean, even only yesterday I was on the uh, ONS website looking at the death rates from COVID-19 and it's 6% of all deaths that are happening 
currently in uh, the country. So, you know, people are asking the same questions. Why are we taking a sledgehammer here to crack a nut? Well, indeed, and the, the overall death rate is mercifully very low around the world. I mean, it's over a million deaths worldwide, but that's a small proportion of the total number of deaths that, that occur. Uh, it's still a very serious and unpleasant disease for an unlucky minority who gets a bad version of it, and I'm all in favour of doing everything we can uh, to stop its spread and to, above all, find better ways of treating it. And mm. I think the breakthroughs are gradually coming on treatment, which may be the best way out. And there was a good UK breakthrough with the development of steroid treatment, which seems to have saved lives and reduced the intensity of some of these cases. Mm. And I'm hoping that more trials of the, uh, the other proposals, the, the antibodies and the antivirals, will lead on to more drugs which abate the seriousness for people. All right. And what do you make of this testing plan for Liverpool? Because the difficulty I think most people again will have with the testing plans uh, that, that have been put in place before is, you know, testing is all very well, but it needs to be alongside lots of other things. You know, if people get told they're going to have to stay off work for two weeks, they may not wish to get tested. So they may be more reluctant to do so. Equally, uh, if, a, if, a, if a test says that you're positive, but you have no symptoms, um, are you going to be convinced enough to take two weeks off work in order to safeguard the rest of the community? You know, there are so many different bits to it um that um, you know it's another one of these silver bullet policies which we're told will make a change to everything but it may or may not no i agree with that i think for it to work you need at least two very important conditions the first is you need to persuade the public to cooperate they have to believe that this is the answer because unless enough people cooperate then then it won't work and then secondly you need to have in place a package of measures for people who would find it very difficult for family and livelihood reasons to self-isolate for seven days or 14 days, I think you've got to give them financial and other support. Right, absolutely right. And so, Sir John, I mean, over the course of the next 24 hours, uh, what are you able to do um, to, to keep the pressure on the government? Well, talk to people, as I'm talking to lots of people <laughs> through your show this morning. Yeah. Uh, but in Westminster, obviously, I and other MPs are, are talking to ministers and making these points which we put out there publicly. Mm. I mean, is there any chance, for example, Duncan Bannatyne this morning was on Julie Hartley Brewer's show saying, can we please keep gyms open? And under tier three in Liverpool, they were locked down first and then opened again. Lancashire was able to keep gyms open. I mean, is there any chance that we could slightly tweak Boris Johnson's lockdown um, and get him to kind of, you know, give a little back? Well, we're trying to do that as well. I mean, I think most MPs um, are making exactly those points because we've all got hundreds of emails from people saying, what about my gym, what yeah. about my outdoor tennis, what about my swim, all those kind of things. Uh, and generally, you'd have thought that exercise is a good thing to keep yeah. us healthy, uh, but it clearly it has to be done with social distancing and um, playing around golf with one person out in the open air seems to me to be fine, but propping up the bar in the golf club afterwards probably isn't such a good idea. Mm. So I think, you know, there needs Depends to be... Depends how badly you've played, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, there needs to be common <laughs> sense about all this. And yes, we would like to see if we're going ahead, as we presumably are with a England national lockdown, we'd like some of the rough edges smoothed off and yeah. some of the things that aren't that harmful to still be allowed. Indeed. John, thank you very much indeed. So John Redwood, Conservative MP for Woking, former Secretary of State for Wales, of course, as well. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
one of the things that we must talk about now, uh, and we're going to talk about it with Dr. Anna Mendoza from Henry Jackson Society, is the terrible attack that happened last night in Vienna. Around about 8 o'clock at night it started, uh, and there's some chilling, chilling audio, which I'm not going to play you, actually, because it's quite upsetting, of how... Um, Guns are being fired, automatic rifles are going off and you can hear um, people screaming. You can hear um, a repeated um, shots being fired. It really is pretty awful. Let's find out from Dr. Alan Mendoza uh, what he's hearing uh, from that part of the world. Uh, Alan, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for uh, for coming on. Shocking uh, attack, it would seem, um, but but sort of coming on, on the heels of what's been going on in France over the course uh, of the last week or two, uh, and also another attack on the French embassy in Saudi Arabia, there's clearly something going on here, isn't there? Yes, I mean, I think we are seeing a resumption of a threat that never went away, really, Mike, but just went quiet for a yeah. bit. That was, of course, the uh, radical Islam terrorist threat. And as you've seen, um, a number of different incidents in the last uh, week or two, and the reality is that our security services have constantly warned us about the nature of this threat. They've told us it remains in many countries the largest threat, although there is also a threat from other uh, sources as well. And unfortunately, the bomber or the uh, you know the attacker only has to get through once, as, as sadly we've seen uh, again last night. Well, of course, the worry though it seems to me to be that, uh, that there's a lot of links to people arriving in Europe relatively recently uh, from perhaps Tunisia, from parts of North Africa, uh, coming into Europe for this specific purpose and I think that's what most people are more concerned about. Yeah, I think obviously um, you've got questions about how migration policy is working, how borders are being protected, why people are being let in who you know shouldn't be here. They're not you know sort of here for political asylum purposes. They're they're here you know on the surface it would appear for economic migration reasons, but they turn out to also be terrorists. So there is a huge concern, as you've just highlighted, about what is going on with Europe's borders and who is being allowed in and what they are doing once they come in, of course, mm. as well, and how monitoring is not working. Well, that's right, because not least uh, of our concerns is the numbers of people who have come to this country over the course of this year. We think uh, estimates are ranging from sort of five to six thousand alone uh, just coming on dinghies across the channel. Um, it may well be that the huge bulk of those people are entirely peace loving and want to just start a new life in a place which is safe uh, from them dying. However, uh, you can't discount the fact that some of them uh, might be similar to these people in Vienna. Yes, and the worst part about this, of course, is that we don't really know who is coming in. Um, you know, when you get uh, boatloads of people coming in trying to sneak in, you, you don't undergo the rigorous checks you would normally do in a migration process uh, as to working out who the migrants are. Um, and given that we already know we have a security services problem in terms of monitoring extremism in this country, any extra importation of extremism is going to stretch our forces even further. Yes, exactly right. And as far as this particular attack is concerned, Alan, what do we know so far? Because it's very patchy in terms of the, 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 the sort of the, the facts coming out of Vienna. You know, at one point last night, there was a, a thought that there were some hostages being held. It's not that clear whether the gunmen were in that street because they wanted to attack the synagogue, which was closed. It's not that clear um, whether all of them have, in fact, been apprehended. 
Yes, it's very hazy. Um, and even even today, even this morning, although the Austrian authorities have been confident, of course, to say this was an Islamist uh, terrorist attack, and they've been able to uh, sadly identify that three people have lost their lives um, and that an attacker uh, and many others have been injured, attacker has been killed. But it, it appears there are others still on the loose from what they are saying. Mm. And so we, we don't have a clear view yet of what the specific motivation was. We know it was ISIS related from what the Austrians have told us. We don't know whether this was planned a long time in advance, whether it was a cell, how this operated. And I think those facts are going to take some time to come out, given the patchy information we've received thus far, which indicates the authorities aren't quite certain themselves of what yet is going on. Yeah, it's very, very worrying. And as far as the Austrian sort of um, situation overall is concerned, I mean, they haven't really had too much problem with this in recent memory, have they? Well, as with all uh, countries, Austria has in Europe, Austria has had extremism issues. It's true they haven't had a you know kind of a mass atrocity like this, the sort of assault that at one stage looked like it could have been like a Bataclan or a Mumbai style mm. assault uh, on their streets. But you know they, there have been numerous warnings by their security services about um, far right extremism, by ra- radical Muslim extremism, and. The sad truth is, in today's Europe, none of us, it appears, are immune from this curse. No, indeed. And as somebody pointed out last night on uh, Twitter, how awful is it that Jewish people are being told to hide inside their homes in the centre of Vienna? Well, it's all very reminiscent of of the 1930s in terms mm. of you know, being a Jew on continental Europe once again. If you're forced to hide your identity, what does that say about us as, as, as free societies? What does that say about us as liberal democracies that we cannot protect people? It's a, it's a terrible stain on our own uh, you know, democracy and public service. And people have been going on in, in, in recent weeks about, say, the threat to democracy from people like Donald Trump. We've got our own problems here in Europe, and it's not Donald Trump causing them. It is our failure to combat extremism within our societies. Quite. And one of the things that people always raise about mainland Europe is it's much easier to get hold of guns there because a lot, an awful lot of um, military sort of hardware came across Europe from um, the Eastern Bloc and also continued to come through the Balkans War and all that kind of thing. Um, and I presume it's still relatively easy to move weapons through borders, which are not really checked. Whereas in this country, hopefully... Uh, there's less chance of that. Mike, thank God we're in Ireland, let's put it that way, yeah. because uh, as you've just identified, the ways to get into the UK and the ways to bring arms into the UK are far more limited than you, you have in continental Europe. And you're quite correct to state that the arms trade uh, stemmed from the fall of the Soviet Union beyond the, the Balkan Wars. Uh, it is much easier to get weapons across, A, because the land borders are more porous, B, because in many cases, uh, until fairly recently, there haven't been checks because of the Schengen zone. So you can transport weapons back and forth quite easily. And thankfully, we, we don't have that problem in the sense that, as an island, we are able to police our borders and you just can't bring a gun in just like that. Mm. I mean, un- unusually, I think I'm right in saying, I don't. nobody's actually claimed this yet, have they? We haven't heard from any organisations saying that they did it. Is that unusual? It is unusual, but it probably reflects, frankly, um, firstly, that ISIS is in a much weakened form from what it was. I mean, it's you know been essentially defeated on land. Its leadership structure has been, uh, you know, kind of uh, turned over. This this uh, assailant appears to have been um, an ISIS sympathiser, from what we're hearing 
from the Austrians, but it's true they haven't claimed it formally. And I suspect that reflects either that it was handled locally, it came out of the blue, or that ISIS just is not organized enough to, to sort of do the sorts of things they were doing even as, you know, as little as two years ago. Yeah. I'm reading uh, the latest reports here that the gunman who killed four and wounded 17 was apparently released early from prison on terror charges because he was too young to be kept in jail. 20-year-old uh, Kujtim Fedzulai was jailed in April 2019 because he wanted to travel to Syria. So the suggestion, I suppose, being that he was an Austrian citizen. Yes, that's an interesting point. If that's the if that's the case, and indeed his youth allowing him to sort of leave uh, leave prison early. Yeah. Uh, but then again, we've got the next question we have to ask is why was he not being monitored? If he was nonetheless a danger, and mm. um, he may not been able to be kept in in prison, what was going on in terms of Austrian intelligence monitoring? Have they dropped the ball here? Well, this is again the same sort of question that's always raised that there's only so much monitoring they can really do, and if you've got so many suspects who are being released out onto the streets, it's very difficult. You know, maybe it'd be a better idea not to release them. Well, that's why, of course, we had a campaign here, as you know, to end automatic release uh, mm. so early in sen- halfway in sentences for people guilty of the most serious crimes like terrorism. And um, as a result, we've uh, increased the limits here to uh, two thirds of their sentence, at least. And I think other countries are going to have to look very carefully and make the assessment that terrorism is not like other crimes. It's an ideological crime. It's not conducted out of a moment of anger. It's planned. There is a, um, a, a reason why people are doing it. And in many cases, sadly, they are not de-radicalised in prison and come out believing the same or worse at the other end. No, quite right. Dr Alan Mendoza, thank you very much indeed. Executive Director of the Henry Jackson Society on the terrible uh, attack that was made uh, in Vienna last night. Uh, it turns out that the boy, uh, well, he's not really a boy, he's a young man who made, uh, uh, who did most of the shooting, is aged 20, uh, killed four people, wounded 17. It's not clear how many other people were involved. Uh, he was wearing a dummy explosive belt. He seems to have been shot dead now um but there's a big manhunt going on for at least one other attacker who might be on the run and this guy apparently originated from albania uh which is one of the uh, countries which of course uh, does export an awful lot of people uh through asylum seeking programs to all sorts of countries in europe and these are the kinds of issues uh that will have to be tackled by any government regardless of what's going on uh, under lockdown it seems to me that there has been something going on in Europe, in France, and now in Austria uh, over the past few weeks, which is a very, very dangerous development indeed. And here we are in the UK, uh, not knowing really whether we're going to be next. And that is the problem, surely. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, before we speak to Esther Krakow, let's have a listen to some of the closing speeches from the, 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 the last day of campaigning. Of course, Donald Trump was going absolutely all over the country, uh, covering thousands and thousands of miles, talking to thousands and thousands of people. His last rally uh, was in Grand Rapids, Michigan. If you want your children to be safe, if you want your values to be honoured, if you want your life to be treated with dignity and respect, then I am asking you to go to the poll tomorrow and vote, vote, vote. Remember what I said four years ago, I am your voice and we will make America great again. And that's what we're doing. And that, of course, has been the Trump mission. That has been the Trump message that we will make America great again. Uh, he has been relentless uh, in the last few days. I don't know whether he's uh, uh, not sleeping or whether he's got some kind of special uh, energy that he seems to have found. Nigel Farage, who we spoke to yesterday, said he's never seen anything like it. Let's hear from Joe Biden. His last rally uh, was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, let me tell you something, folks. Tomorrow's the beginning of a new day. Tomorrow. We can put an end to a presidency that has left hard-working Americans out in the cold. Tomorrow, we can put an end to a presidency that has divided this nation and fanned the flames of hate. Tomorrow, we can put an end to a presidency that has failed to protect this nation. Joe Biden there speaking uh, at his last rally in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, of course, will be a massive battleground uh, because it's been said that if Joe Biden cannot win Pennsylvania, then he cannot win the White House. Esther Cracker is here with us. Esther, very good morning to you. Hi, good morning. So we've reached the day, finally, after all of the most bizarre kind of, um, you know, you know corona-type campaigning that we've seen, uh, where people are wearing masks all over the place, yeah. you know, they're standing on, standing on stages outside in the freezing cold, mm. you know, unable to get very many people. I mean, Trump has managed to get thousands of people, though, around him, and yeah. he's been accused of being careless for, for doing Did that. Did you see that picture of, like, I think it was like 70,000 people yeah. at this rally in right. Pennsylvania? I know. And Pennsylvania is a big deal for him and for Biden, because, yeah. of course, Biden came out at one of the, uh, the I think it was the second um, debate and basically said, uh, denied that he was going to do away with fracking and denied that he wanted to do away with fossil fuels. And then everybody dug up this interview that he'd done uh, and loads of other interviews in which he said, I want to do away with fossil fuels and fracking, which is a big deal in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I would be I, I must admit, I'll be very shocked if Joe Biden wins Pennsylvania. I think. Well, if um, he doesn't win it, then he ain't winning the White House, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'll be very shocked if he wins in general, but Pennsylvania would be a huge deal if he if he did win it. I'd be very, very shocked just because, you know, forget the fact that he says he doesn't want to ban fracking. It's the indecisiveness. Yeah. Obviously, you know, these videos have cropped up. And then Kamala Harris, who's definitely, you know, anti-fracking. Yeah. Um, so it's not even a ticket that you could, I suppose, reasonably place a bet on mm. if you're living in that state. It was interesting, actually. Industry. I was listening to James Wells' show last night and he had a call from a woman originally from Seven Oaks, but who yeah. is a, a dual citizen in the United States and has lived in San Francisco. Francisco uh, for the best part of the last 20 odd years and she's a firefighter right yeah and she was saying how dreadful it is 
uh, in some of these Democrat cities now, like San Francisco, yeah. uh, which like are LA. so badly run, like L.A. <laughs> friend of mine as well who lives in L.A. has moved to Arizona for the prevailing period because there's a lot of people who think that there might be a massive kind of violent uh, upsurge from mm. people who are not Trump supporters if he wins. Yeah. You know, I was I was saying to a friend, it'd be really funny if Trump won California. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But, I, you know, there's a psyche that I don't understand in those areas. A lot of people are fleeing California. Yeah. Yet they end up voting for the same horrible politicians that made their states unlivable in the first place. Yeah. I don't understand that. I know, it's strange, isn't it? But I think the trouble as well is that it's an interesting race for the first time for me as well yeah. because an awful lot of Democrats are not comfortable with what the Democrat Party has become. Yeah. Some Republicans are not happy with Donald Trump as the leader of the Republican Party either. So there's a kind of a mismatch going on. And yet we're told there's going to be a bigger voter turnout for this election than the last one. And I think that means that this vote is, is more symbolic yeah. than, you know, other votes in the past. I think for me, what I've noticed with the Democrat Party is the moderates in the Democrat Party have just fallen through the floor. Yeah. That moderate section of the Democrat Party, which is really their bread and butter. I yeah. mean, that's how Obama won in 2008 and 2012. Yeah. They have literally just fallen through the floor. And, you know, I think it's it's been such a mistake for for Biden, but Kamala as well, to embrace the very far left part of the party yeah. in the way that they've done and made it very vocal. Look at the squad. Mm. Look at people like Bernie Sanders. Look at how far Bernie Sanders came. Right. They have literally um, effectively rejected the, the main base and have shifted so far left that the reason why I think there's such a huge voter turnout is because there's something fundamentally wrong with one of the big main parties yeah. in the US. Do you and think there's crazy. some similarities you could draw between what's happened to them and what's happened to the Labour Party as Oh, well? yeah, because, with the Momentum Group. Yeah, yeah. because Labour are now trying to kind of pull back from that, yeah. um, having suspended Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, I have to say, I was very um, slightly irritated to find myself on yeah. holiday on the week that Jeremy Corbyn got suspended from the Labour Party uh, and the same week that Keir Starmer ran over a cyclist. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> um, the thing is that they have, uh, they have both similarly moved to this kind of intellectual left, left yeah. position without taking any of their traditional working class voters with them. Yeah, and it's it's very weird. I, I don't I don't know where that strategy came from. And you notice a lot of people that tend to, I suppose, uh, have uh, shifted the parties as far left as they have. They tend to mm. be sort of middle class, you know, elite educated, university educated, um, you know, individuals yeah. who, you know, sometimes question the agenda. Right. And I, I, for me, that's just a result of the university system because there's no other reason behind it. These are people that clearly have very little life experience or, you know, have lived in a bubble of sort of academia right. their entire lives. And they have the people that have managed to shift these parties left. And, and I think, you know, we're going to see a, the same thing happen that happened you know, last year at the general election. Sure. We're going to see the same thing in the US. And what they're trying to do, the Democrats, of course, and this is why we're told that there's a massive kind of postal vote mm. and the early voting has been going on in many of the states in the south. is They're trying to galvanize the black vote. Yeah. They're trying to galvanize the ethnic vote and the young vote. Um, but that may not matter yeah. um, if, in fact, Donald Trump wins New York back, if he wins Florida, if he wins Pennsylvania, if he wins Ohio. You know, um, none of I that will make any difference. I doubt he'll win New difference. York. But I think one thing the Democrats, unfortunately for them, I think all of it has come um, in this particular general election in the sense that there's also a huge anti-Democrat movement mm. in, in the US now. You know, minorities are saying, actually, you need a little bit more. It's not enough to just rely on the black and Latino voters saying, oh, you know, the other guys are really racist because mm. it's like, well, you haven't done much either. Right. So are you the real racist? Yeah. And um, I think they're really underestimating that. Yes, I think so. So, I mean, as far as the sort of uh, uh, the, 
the, the way that things are going to pan out later on, obviously we're going to be on the air uh, throughout the night. We're expecting there to be some early indications by maybe two, three o'clock in the morning yeah. with a bit of luck uh, if we can do that. But there's also an awful large portion of, of the sort of commentariat who think this is going to turn into a very long and very drawn out legal battle yeah. um, because Trump is going to declare victory because he's voted, uh, you know, because all the postal votes may not have been counted. Mm. And then the postal votes may sway it a different way. Um, I, I'm i very sceptical of that. Um, I, I'm going to turn off my social media by like 10 p.m. this evening. <laughs> I don't want to know anything. Well, don't forget don't to watch hear. the show. I mean, yeah. Uh, uh, no, Mike, I will not. <laughs> I will literally <laughs> be a in, a in, a, in a hole on the ground. Yeah. No, I just, I don't really want to be in the thick of it. I'm not very good with suspense and drama no. in that way. Okay. I think because there's going to be such a historic turnout, I don't think, you know, the waiting for the mail-in ballots would have that much of an influence. I'm yeah. very, very sceptical of that. But uh, it's we'll going to be interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, may well be that you know you'll wake up in the morning and they'll, they'll still be counting, and they won't. Yeah. They won't. Nothing will have happened. I mean, it's a bit like those uh, interminable council elections that yeah. we have in this country, where you go. So who won that council? Oh, we'll find out a week on Friday. A week on Friday. And yeah. You're kind of going. Well, why does it take so long? And it yeah. is. I mean, it's very interesting in America where they've got this kind of bizarre system which is actually you know quite antiquated compared mm. to what everybody else in the in the rest of the world does they had remember the hanging chads um debate when back in florida this was probably i think it was bush and gore um okay. when um florida was was going both ways it was declared oh, by Dan yeah, Rather, yeah, 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 cbs remember, yeah. uh, anchor that uh, that gore had won mm. and he declared it so early that he had to then cancel that reverse it yeah. then declared about two other different results but the the, the the phrase that everybody's mind was turned to was this hanging chad because yeah. you go in you don't actually mark an exit in a box you go in and you pull a lever which kind of punches a hole where you want it to be punched okay. uh, which can result in all sorts of you know problems because it's a very antiquated way of doing things and so yeah. a lot of people have said you know isn't it time that they actually they modernized, modernized yeah, a little bit more system. but the other thing i suppose philosophically that i would ask you about is the the, the, the dearth of of opportunities for younger politicians you know there were younger politicians that stood in um at the beginning when um you know uh, trump uh, and biden the, were being yeah, during nominated the during the during the whole process yeah. but you know they've ended up with these two guys who in the end don't really represent america but they yeah, do absolutely. represent a particular generation don't they and it's really weird i always say you know and this i think this this is the fault i mean you know trump is still pretty energetic but you know shifting the focus onto the democrat party in the selection of a candidate i feel like if they'd chosen someone like tulsi gabbard or anyone who's kind of a respectable politician in the cleaner phrase yeah. of the term would have beaten trump like hands down I don't know how of 330 million people of a party as powerful and as large as the Democrat Party, you chose someone who's, yeah. who can't even get his words out. Like, well, I, you know, his mental him, faculties that, that, are in question. That little speech we had him make there in Pittsburgh, yeah. he's already sort of, you know, mumbling his words and kind of, you know, slightly slurring them. He came out with something the other day, which Nigel Farage retweeted, yeah. which was basically... Trouble, gibberish. Just yeah. gibberish. Yeah. You know, nobody could tell what he was saying. I mean, I don't think there's many people who believe that if he does win, mm. that he will take his presidency to the full, full term. Time. No, years. if he does win, it's Kamala Harris who's mm. going to be the next president. Right. And, you know, that's something that nobody else voted for. And a funny thing about Kamala is, um, again, she is like... She like, I don't understand why the Democratic Party did this. I mean, I know they were trying to curry the favor of the black vote yeah. with Kamala as, you know, being on the ticket. But mm. it's like, this is a woman that's made a career of imprisoning young black men for minor offenses. Yeah. And she's Indian. <laughs> she's yeah. not even like, I, like, I don't even understand the cognitive dissonance of the Democratic Party with regard to this woman. Right. This woman, A, is 
okay, racially ambiguous, we can put it that way. She's not black. And she's made a career out of, you know, jailing young black men in the US. Mm. How exactly are you supposed to curry favor with anyone right. with a candidate like but that? But then that's the whole problem, is it not, with the Black Lives Matter movement, that it's yeah. not clear who they represent exactly, because yeah. there's an awful lot of people who have been involved in, in some of the rioting in America who are mm. white and middle-class kids who have decided to join in the sort of burning and looting of shops. Yeah, which, make, they, which they say is justified. To, to make a political point about a group of people that they are not part of, yeah. which seems very odd to me in the beginning. I mean, we saw, I think, last week that Black Lives Matter has now officially applied to become a political, a political party, party yeah. which I think is an interesting move because it will make them far less able um, to demonstrate. It will make mm. them far less able to... Um, be representative on 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 even the media because yeah. they now are treat will be treated as a political the organization party. yeah which up until now that hasn't been the case and that's what everyone was saying we we're all saying this is not a wholesome anti-racist movement this right. movement is political right and you know even in schools people were just teachers and faculty members were very anxious about talking about it because on the one hand you know especially because the teachers unions in this country are very left-wing they're yeah. like yeah this is anti-racism but on the other hand they couldn't deny the clear political nature of this organization right um and now they've obviously registered as a political party well, so. and it will also prohibit them from accessing various things yeah, like they won't be able to be represented perhaps you know like by, by sports organizations yeah. because they're a political party they can't yeah. get involved in any any kind of sporting activity they can't be sort of endorsed by companies because companies now would then be in the business of endorsing political parties so yeah. they've always shot themselves in the foot i think yeah and this is kind of egg on the face on uh, at the premier league yeah. for the premier league because it's just like you know you gosh go work go broke is a thing right yeah but they jumped on the bandwagon i'm not even sure if players didn't want to wear the the jerseys with black yeah. lives matter and they they were allowed not to yes um and they've made this huge stance supporting this organization and now look right what's happened and what do you think will happen in the u.s if trump does win another four years in terms of those types of movements and that type of kind of demonstration culture that's been growing there because i mean a lot of people have said that there are many um you know it's very tense in a lot of american yeah. cities that there is a sense that there might be trouble if he does win yeah um and the police are gearing up for that and it doesn't sound good um but they can't do that for four years surely can they um well i mean the media and celebrities have definitely tried their best to keep up the tantrum mm. i haven't actually seen a lot of celebrities saying they'll leave the country this time so i'm guessing they well realize. they didn't do it last time did they I yeah mean, well so i mean they, like they don't Cyrus do what they say yeah you know well, shocking and we're still waiting for yasmin alibi brown to leave the country when she we're said waiting she for a lot of them we're yeah. waiting for about half of silicon valley anyway <laughs> but, um <laughs> exactly right i think you know the shops that are boarding up uh the you know, companies that are boarding up their shops because they're anticipating the reality is a lot of the violence that we do see whoever wins will not be from mainly trump supporters that's yeah. just that's just a fact it mm. will definitely come from the militant left that we've seen right. you know taking a foothold in the country but i guess my um, question is is it has it been a fad or will it become part of kind of what you would call mainstream um, america because america is a country that i know pretty well you know my sister still lives there my mother lives there my son lives there but it's not really a country that I recognise anymore in terms of the way that it's performing and, and, and behaving. I don't think it's a fad. I think these people are, you know, when you're ideologically possessed, you do everything that's outside of reason, right? Mm. And these people are, are, are here to stay. Obviously, the left have a very strong foothold in the culture in the US. Um, I think, you know, we'll start seeing these the influence of these movements dissipate when... I suppose more center right or more center um, organizations and groups and thinkers start mm. to take a bit more control of the media or of culture and stuff like that. And there's just actually a true diversity of opinion. Um, I don't think it's a fad. I think that you you know either way, whatever happens, there will be some sort of violence, which is very unfortunate. 
Um, but I do think um, eventually America will come out stronger. Yeah, well, let's hope so, Esther. Thank you very much indeed. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, one of the things that did surprise me this morning, and I don't want you to take uh, read anything into this in particular, but it just struck me that the Daily Mail this morning doesn't even talk about COVID, doesn't do anything about COVID until page 14. We've been telling you about the uh, incredible graphs that they've been putting out, which pretty much put to shame the government's presentation on Saturday. But they instead dedicate their entire front page to what is quite a remarkable story that you may have heard a little bit about over the last couple of days. Martin Bashir, uh, who is, of course, famously uh, the man who interviewed Princess Diana on Panorama way back in 1995, in which she said there are three of us in this marriage. It was that interview, right? Um, It turns out that Martin Bashir allegedly, according to Princess Diana's brother, Earl Spencer, actually uh, falsely put together a letter accusing Charles of an affair um, with the boy's nanny. And all sorts of other sort of, you know, sort of dark arts supposedly were used by Bashir in order to get the interview to air. Now, Earl Spencer is involved in a feud now with Tim Davey, the new director general of the BBC, who has sort of issued some kind of mealy-mouthed apology, um, piecemeal apology is what Spencer describes it as, uh, about how she was trapped and tricked into giving an interview that she never really wanted to give. Let's talk to Charles Ray, who is, of course, former royal editor of The Sun, who remembers that night, I'm sure, as well as I do. Charles, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Michael. Yes, I mean, I was just remembering and telling Marta, my producer, about the night there that I was, uh, I was uh, tasked with night editing The Daily Express that night. Um, and all the senior executives were taking the night off for some bizarre reason. And uh, I remember sort of scrambling from one edition to the next as each as each you know revelation came out, starting off with, I will not go quietly, uh, and finishing up with, there were three of us in this marriage. And this is an extraordinary story, isn't it? It is extraordinary. And I, like you, remember the night vividly. I was sitting in a room listening because we never got advanced copies of what she was going to say or anything. So we were taking it down as she was speaking. And every every word that she came out with was, wow, God, yeah. oh, my God. <laughs> it was, and everybody was sort of saying, wow, what a lucky sod that Martin Bashir was managing to persuade the Princess of Wales. Um, it now this has been rumbling on since 1996. I mean, 96 was when Charles Spencer first raised the issue that you know Diana was tricked, um, and you know, the then uh, BBC Director General Lord Hall carried out some sort of inquiry in which he exonerated Martin Bashir, who ironically is the religious affairs correspondent. So you wouldn't expect the religious affairs correspondent to be up to anything naughty. Otherwise, no. the confessional would be would be quite high. Um, now, we've got a situation where Charles Spencer is basically accusing Martin Bashir of yellow journalism. And we have to say here that Martin Bashir has not been able to make any comment whatsoever because he's quite ill at the moment with COVID-19. So right. we're still waiting to hear if he's got anything to say about this. But in this, in essence, Charles Spencer says that, uh, that a document was produced which showed that two senior royal aides were in the employ of the Secret Service and were being paid by them to spy on the Princess of Wales. And it was these documents that persuaded Charles Spencer to introduce Bashir to the Princess of Wales. 
It then transpires that he then said to Diana after, look, I don't think you should go ahead with this because I don't think Bashir's telling the truth and everything else. Diana said, yeah, fine. Well, the rest, as we know, is history. She decided herself she was going on. Now, these documents that Bashir um, seems to have produced um, relate, in effect, preyed on the insecurities and paranoia of the Princess of Wales at that time. She was convinced that her her mobile phone and her other phone, her landline phone, was being bugged by the Secret Service. She also had quite a high-profile uh, row with the Tiggy Leg, leg Boat in which she uttered the immortal phrase, sorry to hear about the baby, suggesting that she'd had an abortion. Mm. Completely false uh, allegation by the princess. Um, and so these were the documents that were produced. Now, um, uh, the BBC have said that the documents the documents that were, were not used and were not shown to the Princess of Wales, and they have a letter to this effect from the Princess of Wales that says that she did not see these documents. <laughs> Unfortunately, they seem to have lost that side letter from the Princess of Wales. But it's just going to run and run, and it's going to be a big battle, literally a battle royal over the over this uh, allegation. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the Princess of Wales was determined that she was going to do this interview. And I don't think that the, this behind-the-scenes massive row would have uh, stopped her, to be perfectly honest. No, quite. And, I mean, Tim Davey, who's the incoming sort of director-general, has got plenty of things on his plate already. I'm sure he yeah. doesn't welcome the addition of this big part on top of it because there must be presumably producers around who were involved in that show on Panorama who sure. Martin Bashir may have or may not have brought into his confidence. That's right, and it is it is alleged that the the the, the certainly one of the do- at least one of the documents was fabricated by a BBC um, a graphic artist. It's an allegation, and we've still got to wait for that to be proved. But it doesn't seem that the BBC are uh, 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 they're fudging the issue on the on the uh, on the document. They're mm. not saying it's true, and they're not saying it's not true. And of course, we haven't had the opportunity to hear from Martin Bashir, who I'm sure will uh, have a lot to say on this right. at some stage. And what do you think Spencer's sort of motivation for this is? Because obviously, um, as you would imagine, um, uh, you know, his, his nephews, uh, Harry and William, can't, can't be too happy about all this being dug up all over no. the place again. And Spencer himself famously made that uh, incredible speech at Diana's funeral, uh, which he kind of more or less attacked the press for killing her, blamed the uh, tabloids for hounding her to her death, promised to look after the kids for the rest of their lives, and then really didn't. Well, no, and it seemed, well, and we have to also remember that Spencer was the one that when the Princess of Wales pleaded with him to stay at Althorpe when things were going through a very, very bad patch, he turned her down yeah. uh, and, and didn't want to step up and help. So, I mean, it's a bit, you know... <laughs> This thing of him now jumping on this bandwagon again, uh, uh, is it going to change anything? I mean, it's not going to change a thing. She made, she made the, um, the, 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 she gave the panorama interview. She, she was, she knew what she was doing, and she did it. Whether or not the, 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 these documents exist ever existed mm. and were were shown to Spencer. I don't really think it's the point. It's a great story, and we're, we, we, the media, are reveling in it. Yes. But whether it's going to alter anything, it's not. So at the end of the day, if the BBC and Martin Bashir, you know, uh, apologise for it all, I don't see what it's going to do. She still said there were three of us in this marriage, and it was the most 
amazing interview that anybody has ever seen for mm. a great many years since. Oh, absolutely right. And of course, you know, she also spoke to a great many other journalists, you included at various different times, uh, Richard Kay specifically. Yeah. Uh, she also, of course, uh, did the whole um, Andrew Morton book. So it wasn't as if she was kind of uh, that unpersuadable to talk. No, no, no. And we have to remember that by, by the time she was doing Panorama, you know, the Morton book, Diana, Her True Story, was a number world bestseller. And it was round about that time as well that we discovered, or shortly after, that we discovered that uh, it wasn't just people who were close to Diana who was giving out the information. Mm. It was actually Diana herself in taped messages to Andrew Morton. Yeah. So... This thing about, you know, his suggestion that she may not have given this interview, I do not believe that. I think she was going to give that interview no matter what. Yes. So this, again, goes back to what it, what is it that Spencer wants, really? Because, you know, he's been a guy who's been a bit of a, um, a, a sort of a villain figure for the press for many years, not least because of what he said in, in Westminster Abbey. But also, um, you know, he was the NBC royal correspondent at various points, was he not? Um, he then went off to live in South Africa, um, where all sorts of things happened that led to various different marriages. And so, you know, he's a he's a bit of a hate figure for Fleet Street, isn't he? Well, he is. Yes, I mean he's he's uh, he's got he's got form, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure what it is he wants out of this. I, I mean, he he seems to be saying in his letter to uh, uh, Mr. Davy that their their apology is merely mouthed, and he wants a more substantive apology. Well. I mean, you can only say sorry, you know, once or twice. Right. I mean, what else do you need to? What else do you need to say? I think he's probably taking advantage of the fact that it's now twenty-five years since you gave that interview, and this has reared its head again. As I say, this has been simmering for a great many years, and you know, he's having another pop at it, and yes. he's getting the publicity out of it. Yeah, interesting times. Well, Charles, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Great to see you as well. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 